0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.
1: It brings me great pleasure to get a chance to introduce Kathy Eisenhardt, who is a colleague and a good friend. Uh, We have worked together for... Uh, two decades now in putting together STVP, and along with Tina Selig, we have responsibility for its leadership. Which means we just celebrate the work of all of our other teammates. But to get a chance to work with Kathy on a weekly, if not daily, basis for so long has been a true joy. Uh, what we're celebrating here, and the timing is, is was not that m- much, you know, necessary. Uh, not that much on purpose. It's just beautifully fortuitous for us. Is the launch of her new book. It's called Simple Rules. Um, she has been recognized in about every possible way that a scholar and an academic can be recognized. I mean, she's a f- endowed chair here in the School of Engineering. Um, she has more honorary degrees than you can shake a stick at from universities all over the world. Uh, over a hundred publications. Her PhD students are, are numerous, and they're in. They're in the top jobs teaching all over the world. So what's the deal? Well, she finally, and this is about time that the world got to see this, Um, she's taken this in brilliant ideas regarding dealing with a complex world, this thing called simple rules, and has provided it in a way that is easily digestible and approachable by people of every... Continent as well as every stage of life, I mean, we struggle to manage complexity every day. who can't relate to that in this room? Come up and talk to me later <laughs> if, if you're if you're not struggling to manage complexity every day, this book is really a significant contribution to the literature and in innovation and entrepreneurship, but it's also I, we predict going to have implications and reach far beyond that, far beyond it, to almost everybody, almost everybody um, in the world. So this is a pretty special moment. It's just, it's brand new. It's actually for sale outside <laughs> um, by the bookstore. Um, but we get to hear the author, at least one of the co-authors. So let's give a really warm welcome to one of our own, Kathy Eisenhart
0: well good morning afternoon good morning good afternoon everybody thanks a lot for sharing your beautiful sunny afternoon indoors with no windows with me so thank you um and thank you tom for that nice introduction i also want to thank the stvp team danielle eli dimitri all you guys for doing mike all of you doing a great job um, helping me get the preparation going for this talk as well as just doing great things for stvp um Most of the talks in this series are by entrepreneurs, and I'm not. And I'm not going to tell you about my journey and my vision and how I conquered all odds and I never saw my family and I had a great business. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about something else. And that is what academics do, because while the speakers that you often have – by the way, there's some seats up front if you all want to come down – what, what most of our speakers do and I think do very well is they speak about one, two, five and sometimes the ten companies they've started. And they know those companies really well. What academics do is we study those companies. And I know probably hundreds of companies sort of well. So we're really taking two different lenses. There's a the deep dive of, of the individual entrepreneur and there are people like me who are voyeurs into the world of the entrepreneur. And so that's what I think hopefully I will inspire some of you who say, hmm, maybe on entrepreneurship, to be an academic because it's a way better job, I think, although I'm not as rich as Mark Zuckerberg and never will be. Uh, yeah, come on down if you want. There's some spots. Need some space? Okay, so that's a little bit of a, a start. Let me get, let me get going on, the, on what the talk's about. I'm going start out with something like actually a little bit serious. This is a story about a sergeant, Edward Montoya, who was in the Army, U.S. Army in Iraq about 10 years ago. It's just before Christmas. He's hanging out in the tent with a bunch of his buddies. Actually, they're having dinner. And he's munching on a little cheesecake. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees this flash. And it's somebody dressed up in an Iraqi security uniform setting himself off and blowing the place up. Montoya is an Army medic. Ducks under the table. He's okay. Gets out from under the table and sees carnage. What do you do when you see hundreds of bodies that need you? Some of whom are in pretty good shape, some of whom really are not, some of them in the middle. What do you do? And what I'm going to argue today is he's got a lot of the same problem that Janet Yellen, head of the Federal Reserve, crickets, not an easy job being a cricket, <laughs> and Mark Zuckerberg, particularly as he starts Facebook, they all have They all have the same problem. How do you cope with the complexity when there's way too much to do? And what I'm going to argue today is all of those people and the crickets are using simple rules. By simple rules, simple rules are cognitive shortcut strategies that save time and effort by focusing your attention and simplifying how you think. That's the basic definition. What does that mean in real life? Well, simple rules 1.0. There are three key features of simple rules. The first one is, simple rules are simple. That means simple rules are maybe two, three, four, five rules. Second, simple rules are unique. Your rules aren't necessarily my rules. And then finally, simple rules relate to something, a defined activity. Not some sort of general thing like be nice to your mother. Although with Mother's Day coming up, I am into that. Um, Let me give you an example of what simple rules are. Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan, UC Berkeley professor and author of Botany of Desire, Omnivore's Dilemma, other great books, has some simple rules for eating. Eat real food that your grandmother would recognize. Eat mostly plants and not too much. All you have to do, not too much uh, plants and things that are not processed. So you can eat blueberries, kale, cantaloupe, whatever you want. That's simple. Second idea is simple rules depend on the person in the situation. Stanford football team versus Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan, middle-aged guy, he's got his rules. Stanford football team, this portion control is not really working for them, and this no protein is not really working for them. Rather, what are their rules? Their rules are more around always be hydrated because they're busy boys, hardworking. Their second rule is eat breakfast because as students, they have a tendency to stay up late and get up late and then rush to class and skip breakfast. So the second rule is, skip break- is, is always eat breakfast. And the third rule is eat things that you can pick, pluck or kill. So again, non-processed, but you can move past plants for those guys. So it depends on who you are. And then the third idea is that simple rules, I'll I give you one more example, give you Indiegogo and Kickstarter. To give you get you more into the entrepreneurship realm here. Indiegogo, both of them crowdfunding source uh, sites. Indiegogo is from, again, from Berkeley, actually, uh, and started with the mantra of the Internet is for everybody or everybody deserves a rich uncle and that's your crowdsourcing friends. What are the rules at Indiegogo for projects? You can put anything on Indiegogo if it's legal. You want to fund your root canal? Go to Indiegogo. You want to fund your in-utero child? Go to Indiegogo. You want your startup? you want to be the Jamaican bobsled team, you go to Indiegogo. Indiegogo does not curate. Indiegogo instead has an algorithm to pick their favorites, and it's based on effort, which they regard as very important, and it's based on what uh, the popularity of the project is to the crowd. Contrast those rules with Kickstarter. Kickstarter starts out actually in film. They have as their analogy, we want to be like Amazon. Amazon starts in books, we start in films and then add categories. But not everything can be on Kickstarter. No root canals on Kickstarter. Rather the way Kickstarter works is your projects are curated, they're put into 13 buckets and about 25% of the projects that are submitted don't ever appear on Kickstarter. And then how do they curate in terms of what's the popular picks of the staff? The staff actually picks, not not an algorithm. Overall, the point is two ostensibly the same businesses using fundamentally different rules. The Android rules of Indiegogo versus the Apple rules of of Kickstarter. Open system, closed system. And then finally the idea is that simple rules relate to a defined activity. Choosing the right food or picking crowdfunding projects. Okay, that's that's simple rules 1.0. How do you create simple rules? Where do they come from? Determine your objective. Keep it specific. I want to be the number one U.S. solar residential company um, by measured by revenue, for example. Or I want to lose 15 pounds. Find the bottleneck. What's the thing that's really keeping you from what you're doing? What's really the thing that's the sticking? So for example, a great one right now for, for Yahoo, appears to be getting better mobile apps, but the real bottleneck is getting great computer scientists to believe in the Yahoo dream. And then you figure out the rules, the rules that you pull together from expert advice, maybe charting your own behavior, maybe asking your friends. I'll give you an example. The original lean startup, Roald Amundsen. For those of you who, know, who don't know who Roald is, he is a South, he's an Antarctic explorer. He's the first person actually, his team is the first team to reach the South Pole in about 1912. He raced against Robert Scott. So it was the Norwegians versus the Brits. Scott was the well-financed startup. Roald was the lean and me agile startup. Five or six people, on skis, carrying as little as possible, <coughs> pivoting as needed. What's the bottleneck? What's his, well we know his goal. His goal is get to the South Pole first and hopefully alive. What's the bottleneck? What's, what do you really have to do if you want to be that? It turns, about, it turns out it's all about the dogs because you've got to actually get there. And it's about the dogs because that's really your transport that's carrying the food, that's carrying your stuff. You can ski, but you, you've got to get your stuff there. And so what he did actually is come up with some simple rules about how to handle the dogs. Rest the dogs once an hour. Go about 8 to 12 miles a day so the dogs know about That's about how much a good dog can do. And always have a lead skier in front of the dogs because those kind of dogs like to be dominated and they, they are in a situation where either the dog dominates or the person dominates and you want the person to dominate and you put them out front. Simple rules, it gets them to the South Pole. By contrast, Scott, well, you just have, it's too long a story to tell you how, how disorganized he was. Um, okay, creating the rules. So the original lean startup. How about a more contemporary example? This is Zatezi. Zatezi is actually an Eastern European startup. And their business is around uh, cafeteria food for what was happening in Eastern Europe. This is actually Czechoslovakia. What was happening is a lot of big companies, particularly from the States, like Google and Oracle and so on, were moving to Eastern Europe for a variety of reasons. And the entrepreneurs, as Zatizi recognized the opportunity of serving high-quality food to, uh, <coughs> to their clientele and, and essentially being the cafeteria of, of these companies. So they start out and they hire these great chefs and they start getting business and people love their food and all that. But there's sort of a basic problem is they're not making any money. And so their goal becomes how about making money? But what's the bottleneck? Is it lousy chefs? Actually, no, they have great chefs. Is it that they can't get the food? Not that it really. It turns out the problem is the menu. All the chefs are doing their own thing on the menu and just making it whatever they want. Uh, regardless of the season. They're just creating cool food. And so with the chefs, the entrepreneurs started actually a few simple rules about the menu. The menus for the next week are set on Wednesdays by noon. Everybody serves five dishes. Everybody serves three dishes that we know are popular because what was happening before is the chefs were just creating new all the time. Now you have to actually double down on the ones people like. And the next rule was and... There are two. There are two meals that are common across all the cafeterias. So you can do your own thing on three, but you got to be the same with everybody else on two. Within those rules, do do what you want. Turns out they not only got profitable; they also started actually building their revenue, and they doubled in size actually in something like eighteen months. So they're sort of a happily ever after story. Another startup on creating rules. This is a, this is another sexy topic of concrete. Now, you're probably not thinking too much about concrete these days, but did you know that concrete is the third largest source of man made CO2 in the world? So it's actually a huge environmental issue around concrete. Um, It also is a very high per capita consumption of concrete. So per capita, we all use a lot of concrete. It's right up there with water, believe it or not. And so the, what the guys at Prinquist did was come up with a process that made for concrete that lowered the emissions in the production of, of cement. Uh, also was you needed to use less cement, so that saved on it. And then also was less likely to crack, so less, less often you had to replace it. So it was kind of an eco win-win-win going on. But what do we do? This is, these are mostly technical guys. So they go to Las Vegas and people enjoy their product. And they get all these partners who want to partner with them. You know, Hey, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll do your concrete. Well, what do they, how do they pick? We have all these partners. So that becomes their bottleneck. Who are we going to partner with? And they start thinking, they look over some of their, their evidence on who they worked well with, think about it, look at other people, talk, and come up with a couple of simple rules about who to partner with. First rule was around, let's partner with people that have a laser screed machine. That wasn't top of mind to me. Uh, But it turns out it is to them because that's a signal that that partner cares about quality and cares about innovation. If they have that machine, they're into it like we're into it. The second rule was around um, no duplicate partners, so everybody gets their own territory. Another rule was around if you haven't started using our product within three months, you're done as our partner. And then the final rule was around we add a partner roughly every three months, we can't do it faster than that because we can't really absorb um, the organization. Within that context, they then basically started selling their concrete around the world. Okay. Example? Internet dating rules. This is my teaser slide, so you're not going to find out that. Okay. So rules 3.0, you've just, you just heard the simple story of here's what the rules are, keep it simple, few rules, unique rules to you on a process, what's your objective? What's the bottleneck? What are the rules? Now we're going to go to 3.0. Turns out there's different types of rules, which as an academic was pretty interesting to me that there were different types and that they're harder and easier to learn and that they have more and less implications for performance. So the geek in me loved that aspect of it. The um, practical person in me liked the fact that some actually matter more than others. So let me tell you a little bit about them. First of all, there's boundary rules. Boundary rules, as it turns out, are pretty easy to learn. Situations where you're deciding yes or no, like whether or not to give bail or you've got a lot of alternatives, which one to choose. Group of people who really need a boundary rule are burglars as it turns out because you know there's a lot of houses you can burgle but you really don't want to get caught. So what does a good burglar do? What's the simple rule? Never burgle a house with a car in front turns out that is an extraordinarily good rule for knowing whether or not anybody's home. Moving on from burglars. How about the Weinstein Company? The Weinstein Company is, the, is a movie company, as uh, I would think at least some of you know. Um, that, if, in the background there that you can look at, that is, uh, that is the Imitation Game, the movie, which is a Weinstein Company movie. <laughs> If you're a movie company, you see a lot of scripts. There are a lot of would-be writers sending you scripts, sending you story ideas. How do you pick? Well, it turns out the Weinstein company picks, has a couple simple rules. One of them is always have flawed and sympathetic main characters. And the second is have a story that's about a basic human condition. So if you saw the imitation game, you know that Alan Turing is a truly annoying jerk. But you know you like him, don't you? I mean, you really do, you do kind of like the guy. Uh, so he's a flawed but sympathetic main character, and then he's dealing with homosexuality, which, which then adds a, a sort of a social problem on top of it. That's, that's, that's top of mind for at least some people. Uh, another movie by them is Silver, The Silver Linings Playbook, again, dealing with mental illness. Um, the artist, the king's speech, dealing with difficulties in you know talking, obviously. That's sort of their, their genre. Flawed but sympathetic main character, serious common human condition. So what movie wouldn't they do? Gone Girl. Did you all see Gone Girl? Talk about unlikable characters. <laughs> they are not, they're not Einstein Company characters. Uh, also The Birdman. If you saw The Birdman, another movie, Weinstein would never do. Too annoying, those people are too annoying. <laughs> okay, other boundary rules. This is actually a, a startup company called Frontier Dental. And here the problem is, and I'm, those of you who started companies I'm sure know this, you, you try selling your product, and you talk to 100 people, and nobody, nobody wants your product, or three people want your product, and it takes forever. And so that was what was happening to this company. They weren't getting any traction in, in a new cosmetic dentistry project product. They started analyzing when they were successful, they started thinking about it more, they were tracking their own experience, and came up with a couple simple rules, one of which was, again, one, a pretty simple one was go to dentists that have a great website because a dentist that has a great website is a, is a forward-thinking dentist. And then the second thing is uh, avoid any dentist that has more than, more than four finance charges in a year because you want a forward-thinking dentist who also pays his or her bills. Because that's, that's boundary rules. Priority rules are about, okay, you've got a lot of things you could do, but what are really the priorities? Typically happens when you don't have enough time or enough resources friends down the street, Google, have a pretty interesting rule. If you think about their, their bottleneck, particularly in the early days, but even now, it's hiring great computer science talent. You can check the resumes and you can see you know right school, right grades, you know that kind of thing. But how do you really pick beyond that? And it turns out that Google favors people that other Googlers have referred to, to Google. So, for example, Toby refers Albert. Um, And I'm more likely to hire Albert because I trust Toby's judgment. Because we know that Googlers want to work with other smart Googlers. And so that turns out to be a tie break when everything else looks the same. There are also how-to rules. Those are back easy. Boundary rules and how-to rules are the easy ones to learn. Priority rules are a little harder. How-to rules are easy. Guiding the basic steps of executing a task. How do you actually do things? Give me an example out of Twitter of how-to rules. Uh, I know some of you are in business already. Some of you will be in business. Some of you had summer jobs. But you can spend an endless amount of time in business in meetings, constantly going to meetings, stuff happening in meetings. You kind of never get anything done. What some of the executives at at Twitter are now starting to do is a pretty interesting couple of rules around meetings. No PowerPoints because you just waste time figuring out PowerPoints, and you're not allowed to cancel a meeting because everybody's organized their calendars around it and it really screws everybody up if, somebody, if people keep cancelling or not coming. So no PowerPoint, it takes way too much time, don't cancel because you'll mess up everybody. One of the ironies of rules, how-to rules, is that in fact highly creative people are often using rules. It may not be your rules and they may be creating their own sandbox, but they often are operating off rules. Good example is the band The White Stripes. If you're, you're White Stripes fans. But White Stripes, I'm going to catch up on my notes here. White Stripes did their, their album, The White Blood Cells, which is one of the sort of albums of the decades in the 2000s. They did that album, 18 songs in 10 days. What were they doing? Obviously, well, I, I don't know. We won't even discuss what they might have been doing. <laughs> but but we, we just don't go there. But, um, but what they were doing is they were following some rules no blues. Sorry, Tom. No, no solo guitar, caffeine. I don't know about caffeine, but no solo guitar, no slide guitar and no bass. Other than that, again, who knows what they were doing, but they got an award-winning great album out in 10 days. Again, a few simple rules, and simple rules, and rules around creativity are pretty interesting because they actually force you to think more. When we first started doing this research, um, we noticed that 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 better companies had this kind of simple rules. They didn't have no rules because the people who have no rules are often having a really great time but they're not shipping any products and not selling anything. And then there's the, and that was like the, the prototypical bad West Coast company. The East Coast companies tend to be way too many rules. And it was the companies that found that middle spot that in fact turned out to be the ones that were, were pretty good. Okay. Timing rules. It turns out timing rules are hard to learn. Timing rules, when to act, what to do, are hard to do. Rhythms, they they're tend to be harder to learn. But it wasn't too complex for nature. Dragonflies actually migrate on, on timing rules. So the green darter dragonfly of the East Coast, migrates south when there are two nights that are below freezing. They start their journey. And then they keep going on the journey, but any day that the wind is more than 15 miles an hour, they stay put. Otherwise, they're headed south to Florida. More serious problem, is insomnia. Roughly 20% of the U.S. population suffers from insomnia, at least sometimes during the year. It turns out timing rules are incredibly important to curing or at least helping insomnia. Rules like go to bed when you're tired, a timing rule. Get up at the same time every day, more of a rhythm timing rule and minimize the amount of time in bed. Proven rules that help particularly the elderly get a good night's sleep. Bringing it back to business, I think one of a lot of people's favorite companies is Pixar. Pixar, when Pixar started out, they, their first movie was the Toy Story, or first big movie anyway was Toy Story. The problem with Toy Story was that it took four years to create. And it's kind of hard to make a movie business if you only do a movie every four years. And it's hard to get people to actually want to work in your company if you're only doing a movie every four years. So what they started to realize is maybe we actually need to pick up the pace. And they started getting into this idea that we're going to do one movie a year. It's actually not trivial to do one movie a year when it takes you four years to make a movie. But they have got into that rhythm and essentially started to realize we do this in the first year, this in the second year, this is the third year, this is the fourth year. And they just kept flowing through. And so they, they created a pipeline. And they don't make it every year because every so often they do get kind of a dud movie and they just don't release it. But basically they're doing every, a movie a year and they're releasing that movie at Thanksgiving which is the biggest box season time of the year for them. Movie a year... Hit Thanksgiving. That goes with, I think, actually, another one of the rules is pretty f- interesting rule, story first, graphic second. Okay, timing rules, hard to learn, but worth your time to learn. Finally, the hardest rule of all to learn is when to stop doing something, when to call it quits, when to stay to go, when is it, when is it time to move on. This is a critically important problem if you're a cricket, particularly if you're a female cricket. When have you found Mr. Right? When you find Mr. Right, you'll have more babies and you'll probably have a longer life. Find Mr. Wrong, we all know where that goes. So the question is what do you do if you're a cricket? How do you find Mr. Right? Well, you, you, you keep sort of uh, shopping crickets. Actually, they come to you. And you pick the cricket that can chirp at least three chirps a second. And obviously, better is better. You know, we all know that. Um, if you find Mr. Wright, but if if you st- if you spend about 24 hours and Mr. Wright still hasn't come your way, you lower your standards, which is, as we all know from operations research, is the variable threshold strategy, also sometimes used at bars and other places. <laughs> uh, so stopping rules, stopping rules are also, I think, important for investing. It's very easy to buy stocks; very hard to sell. And our friend Steve Blank, my colleague Steve Blank, I particularly, we all know his rules. I'm sure everybody in the room knows his get out of the building. Get out of the building, talk to 100 people, and you may not know this one, face to, do it face-to-face. Face. What's less known is his stopping rule. And his stopping rules are after you've talked to these 100 people and you've run your business for a little while, you ask yourself four questions. Do customers see this as a problem? Do customer, Will customers pay for a solution to that problem? Will they buy that solution from us and can we create that solution? If the answer is yes, 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 keep going, you get a no, it's time to do the ever popular pivot. Basically, it's time to stop. <coughs> okay, so that was, that was the different kinds of rules. And why am I telling the rules? As I said, as an academic, I love that there were just different ones. But as a real person that you are perhaps more likely to be, the insight here is that as you're thinking about what the heuristics are that start to develop in your business, be sure you figure out some hard ones. Be sure you figure out a stopping rule. You know, when is it time to leave this relationship, this business plan, this whatever? Timing rules and priority rules. Those are the hard ones to pick up. Take your time to, to learn those. Okay, next part of the, the talk. Why do simple rules work? Well, as, as an academic, I actually care about this. We, in academics, we actually try to think what's the underlying reason why things are true. So why is it the simple rules seem to be pretty effective and people like Mark Zuckerberg and Janet Yellen use them and people like Steve Blank? If you, in fact, if you ever listen to Steve, he is like, he's like always talking that way. I think that's actually one of the great, one of the gr- why he's such an insightful person. Why do simple rules work? They make better, you make better decisions. You focus on what's important, you proxy for information and gives discipline, which is all maybe a little abstract. But basically it lets you go faster. And if you're in entrepreneurship or if you're in a big company that's highly innovative, you've got to keep it moving. So they're, they're, they lead faster decisions. So for example, let's take Warren Buffett, world-famous investor. He has a pretty simple rule. Always invest in what you know or never invest in what you don't know, conversely. Very simple rule. Makes for better decisions. It turns out that if you consider... For example, there's a study of picking jams of all things. If you give people a selection of four jams, they're likely to buy. If you give people a selection of 20 jams, they're not likely to buy. It's too much information. It's too many alternatives. Something simple works better. If I give you 10 things to do to be a better student, you'll do none of them. If I give you two rules, I have at least some chance you'll do something. So Warren Buffett, simple rule. The other thing about about better decisions is that rules often proxy for more information. So for example, I mentioned to you that you know we partner with people who have laser scre- screen machines. That was a proxy for something. It didn't really matter about the machine. It was a proxy for the fact that people who had that machine were likely to be innovative, high quality. Um, another, another example is a company we were looking at in, in, in some of our research that was... Um, was expanding internationally. They had a rule, always expand to English-speaking countries. Turned out the team was, were Brits. Most English-speaking countries are Brit, or, you know, for former British Empire. Uh, the culture is actually fairly similar. The business environment is simpler, and they tend to have high, high GDP. So the f- fact that you are it has nothing really to do with language in some sense, it's a proxy for something deeper. Finally, I think, better decisions, you get better decisions, because when you're busy, when you're tired, when you're stressed, is when you when you can fall back on a rule, and that I think is the world that most entrepreneurs, most innovators, most executives in major corporations are in. They're too busy, and just like at the end of the day is the time when you're going to fall off the diet because you're tired. After the end, of, you know, at the end of the day, that Cabernet is calling you. Um, it's when you're tired, when you're stressed out, that you can fall back on a rule. Some rules are also good because they give you flexible opportunity capture. Essentially, rules let you scale. That's kind of the entrepreneurial insight here. If you start figuring out what the rules are, you can scale a lot faster because you're being efficient on the rule, but you're being flexible on exactly what you do. Like the Weinstein Company. There's a certain kind of movie we want, flawed and sympathetic main character. Within that, we can pick a lot of different movies. Flexible opportunity capture. Well, you maybe never thought of the Pope as an entrepreneur. But actually, in 1540, the Jesuits were founded by Ignatius of Loyola, who was a Basque nobleman. They turn out to be one of the most entrepreneurial church organizations known to man. And they actually start at a time when much of the church is stuck with these really boring rules like, don't wear your your slippers outside the monastery, Uh, only bloodlet four times a year, these, you know, There was one, one order that had 73 chapters of rules, pages and pages and pages of rules. In contrast, the Jesuits, who by the way are the educators of Bill Clinton, Fidel Castro, Charles de Gaulle, my brother, and actually a bunch of guys uh, and who play football at Stanford, went to Jesuit schools, um, had a few simple rules to start out that, that, that order as the, uh, if you will, 15th century entrepreneurs it was, to maybe to quote uh, Steve Blank, it was get out of the building, as in get out of the monastery walls, in fact get out of Europe, and yet remember it's all about saving souls. So it's saving souls, get out of Europe, get out of the monastery with a little bit of a priority if you have to choose for education. What that led the Jesuits to is all around the world doing things. It led one particularly Jesuit to hang out with the untouchables in India in rags, ministering to that community. Going over to Japan, hanging out with the shoguns, obviously upping his outfit to hang out with the elite of Japan. Very flexible in terms of what they did. Always about saving souls, whether it was lepers, prostitutes, or whatever. Um, and helping people. But a really broad mandate in which to do that. A little more modern times. How about a little Yelp? Yelp is another one flexible capture of opportunities. Key problem at Yelp is how do you get people to review for free and keep doing it? Because a lot of the Yelp reviews are not, you know, I mean, everybody in this room probably uses Yelp. How many of you review for a Yelp? Yeah, like two. Uh, that's the problem, it's like two. Uh, and, you know, I, I use Yelp and I don't review either. And so the question is how do you get people to review and get jazzed about it? And how do you keep them reviewing? And so they and, and Yelp has got some kind of interesting motivational techniques, which maybe is for another time. But the point is it's enabled Yelp to be around the world, to be in taco stands to Avia and other elite restaurants, letting them kind of do whatever they want, with reviewers of all of all stripes. So the point is it let Yelp go to lots of cities, lots of restaurants, lots of kind of reviewers, all within a few simple rules. Then finally, superior coordination is something that rules get you. I'll give you an example. Shared economy is all about coordination of large numbers of people doing something. Zipcar, great example of how do you coordinate, however many customers Zipcar has—hundreds, hundreds of thousands, some crazy number of, of people. How do they start out? At least before they were st- before they were bought by Avis. Couple simple rules around coordinating behavior. And why does it work, by the way, for coordinating behavior? Because when you keep just a small handful of rules or a handful of precepts, people can remember it, people can communicate it, and you can enforce it. Zipcar, what are the things you had to do? Return the car on time. Report damage, fill up the gas tank, keep pets in carriers, don't smoke. Pretty simple set of things that coordinated hundreds of thousands of people doing things. True of Wikipedia, at least when Wikipedia started, Wikipedia started with a couple of rules. Neutral, so that was facts, not opinions. You always have to have a source. And then the third rule, which I actually love, is and don't follow any other rules. They, of course, have changed that if you've been to Wikipedia lately. But if you think about what Wikipedia accomplished in terms of crowdsourcing the encyclopedia and the knowledge of the world, it's an incredible, it's an incredible achievement. And most of that growth was when they had simple rules. How about superior coordination from Janet Yellen? Janet Yellen, Federal Reserve Chair. Janet Yellen has a hard job. The U.S. economy is not a simple economy, is it? There's a lot going on in the U.S. economy. And part of her job is communicating what the Fed's going to do so that, so that business people and investors have a sense of where the economy is going and have the confidence to invest. What does she do? She has a rule called mind the gap. And the gap refers to the difference between the ideal unemployment rate and the actual employment rate. And it refers to uh, the ideal inflation rate and what's the intolerable inflation rate. And she's monitoring those two, essentially those two gaps and setting interest rates. She and the Board of Governors obviously. Uh, But what that's doing is not only does it appear to be pretty good monetary policy, it also is giving people an understanding, people in the investment community, and the business community, a sense of what's going on with interest rates so that they can plan however they want to plan. So it's, the, it's not just that there are good rules, it's that she's able to communicate a very difficult set of choices, in fact, in a very simple way. Finally, as we're kind of getting to the end here, gone through what are simple rules, how do you create them, what are the kinds, why do they work? They work because they make decisions faster, they let you scale, they let you coordinate large groups of people. Finally, how do you update? It turns out that when you first think about heuristics, rules of thumb, whatever you want to call these, they're usually not all that great. And in fact, the example I'm going to use is, is the Stanford football team. For those of you who are Stanford football fans, you do recall the 1 in 11 Stevens not so long ago. And then are much maybe you've blocked that out at this point. And you're now just remembering the Rose Bowls and the Orange Bowls and the Pac-12 titles. But there are those of us who remember the days when actually it was good because you could always get a seat. Um, But the story I really want to tell is the story of Shannon Turley, who's the strength coach at the Stanford football team. He starts out, Shannon's story starts out, he's at the University of West Virginia and he wants to be a strength coach and so he hangs out at the football in the football locker room and he learns about how to do bench presses and squats and the power of a motivational t-shirt that says personal record on it. But then he moves on and he starts coaching in professional baseball, the minor leagues of the Kansas City Royals. Well, it turns out the Kansas City Royals are not buying the football strength program. They are saying, "And why should I do a bench press and why should I squat, I am a pitcher. So he has to start justifying why his stuff should work and make, a, make somebody a better pitcher, for example. Then he moves on and he's then a graduate assistant at the University of Missouri. And he's, he's the strength training coach of women's volleyball. I don't want to speak for all women, but like bench press is not real interesting to me. <laughs> I barely even know what one is and I don't think I want one. Um, but, women's, but nonetheless, women's volleyball players do have to work out and who have to be in shape. And what they need to be able to do is they need to be able to jump and they need footwork. And so what Shannon started to do was develop, okay, that's really what these women need. They don't need to bench press. They need to be able to jump and they need to be able to, um, to move their feet fast. And as he's doing this, he's starting to reflect on, well, what does it really mean to, us to be a strength coach? So then he gets to Stanford and he's actually brought here by Jim Harbaugh. They worked together in San Diego. Jim brought him here. And he starts really now. Now he's in charge of his own football team. And what he does is he focuses on something that pretty much no other strength coach is focusing on. It's not about being stronger. That's not the goal. It's about reducing injuries. That what we want, what Shannon realized was, you want your best players on the field. They are the ones who play the most. They're the ones who get hurt. You don't want injuries, and particularly if you're a school like Stanford, where you have a very thin team, because there are not that many players who can play elite ball and, and also pass courses at Stanford. So it's a very thin team. You don't want those, apart from the, the moral aspect of you don't want people to get hurt, there is the strategic aspect of you don't want your team hurt. And so what his rules started to be much more about than really any other straights coach were about injury prevention, injury prevention, Lot of, a lot of his rules are around stretching and he has a couple rules around basically exercising in ways that, is re- that are relevant to your position. And as, as Shannon says, bench pressing is sort of pointless because once you're, you do it on your back. Because once you're on your back, you've lost in football. So why would you practice that? So, he's into, so his, he has a couple rules around strength training focused on, particularly on flexibility because that keeps you from getting hurt. couple things focused on injury prevention, couple things focused on functionally relevant to your position. And by the way, uh, apart from the Stanford football team having a better record, which I think just to some extent is due to their strength training, uh, has reduced injuries by 87%. So we also have a healthier team with guys who can go on with their lives and not be cripples. Improving the rules, let's get back to something a little more entrepreneurial, how about Airbnb? Airbnb starts in San Francisco as I'm sure many of you know, with some guys trying to earn extra money by renting out space in their apartment on an air mattress and giving them a bagel in the morning. <coughs> Seems like a great idea. They do a conference that's coming to San Francisco, they get a lot of people, lot of people buying in. So they say, well, you know, it's all about the conferences. And by the way, it's, it's, probably, it's probably kids who are trying to save money. They go to South by Southwest. They get like three people want, the con- want their service. They try the Democratic and Republican conventions. A little more action, but after the conventions are over, Airbnb who? Uh, so what do they do? They join Y Combinator. They're lucky enough to get into Y Combinator. And what the story of Y Combinator is, the, the, by the way, the Stanford football story was around What Shannon did was self-reflect on what he was learning in each of those sports that he coached. What the the Airbnb story is about is not only self-reflection, but learning in a variety of ways. Because at the end of the day, Y Combinator and companies like that are accelerators of learning. It's about how do you learn faster. And the story of Y Combinator is multiple ways of learning. For example, there's the Tuesday night dinner where you listen to some luminary talk about his or her experience. So you have a kind of a role model of what to do. During the pre and post time of that dinner, you're talking with other entrepreneurs about their experiences. So you're vicariously learning about what they're learning in their businesses that they're starting up. So you're learning vicariously about them. They're also asking you questions about what you're doing and you're having to articulate what you do. So you're learning from other people, your peers as well as from the luminary. That's the Tuesday night dinner. They also have special coaching by Y Combinator, uh, personnel, experienced entrepreneurs or at least experienced coaches. For example, for the Airbnb guys, one of the, they learned some really valuable pieces of advice from Paul Graham, uh, one of the founders of Y Combinator. He told them having 100 customers love you is way more important than 1,000 customers liking you. So that sort of set a, a sense of, okay, that's the kind of service we have to deliver. Their second piece of advice was get out of Mountain View and go to New York City. I mean, it's not going to take off in Mountain View. It's going to take off in New York, or cities like New York. So they go to New York. Every week they're going to New York. So that's the third part of the story. They get the advice from an expert. They go to New York and it's on the ground. They're doing experiments. For example, do professional photos work. They're doing trial and error learning with, hey, will apartment managers want to be be doing this for us? So they're doing trial and error, experiments, observation, learning in a variety of ways. After their Y Combinator experience, they start to see what's really going on for them. Forget the conferences. It's about international destination cities. And more (laughs) importantly, it's about the bottleneck for them is hosts. Get the hosts right and business will happen. And that's what they realized with the combination of the Tuesday dinners, expert advice, on the ground, seeing people. It's about the hosts. And in particular, they developed some ideas around how do you recruit a host. It's about a certain kind of party where friends bring friends. And... Then it's also about training hosts. But it's not giving the hosts a zillion things to learn. It's about a couple things, like clean sheets, fresh soap. I mean, who wants to go to somebody's house with old soap? It's about the soap and about professional photography. But really only a couple things to remember. Fresh soap, clean sheets, professional photos. And so the point is that, that many successful entrepreneurs, many successful business people and established corporations, Uh, improve their initial rules, making them more strategic by multiple ways of learning. Finally, talked about changing the rules. Sometimes it's just improving the rules you've got, making them more strategic. Sometimes you've got to break the rules. I'm not going to say too much about California drought because I'm not seeing too many gardeners in the audience. So I won't go dwell on gardening. Perhaps you, but maybe nobody else. Um, Let's just say that the California drought has rocked the world of gardeners because all the rules are different. You don't plant in the spring anymore, you plant in the fall. You don't worry about the flowers, you look at the leaves and the textures. Uh, You don't worry about good soil because native plants like lousy soil. You don't worry about summer watering because the watering matters in April. It's a whole different set of rules that have rocked the world of gardeners and probably rocked. And so rather than responding to the drought by the two C's, concrete and cactus, great gardeners are in fact rewriting the rules. Finally, rewriting the rules. Well, Cheers didn't exactly rewrite the rules. But House of Cards did. House of Cards broke every rule that Cheers was the prototype for. Cheers was one of the original most successful sitcoms television shows of all time, 40 million Americans watched the last episode of Cheers. That's, that's more than anything you can think of that people would watch. 40 million people watching the end of Cheers. Cheers focused on writing. Cheers had fabulous writers and they wrote likable characters who appeared every week, who told a story in a half an hour. So you had Sam and Diane and the various characters of Cheers. Do you all know Cheers? Yeah, Yeah, everybody knows Cheers. Everybody knows knows your name. It's the other tagline. So what happens after Cheers? By the way, Cheers is now the formula of the Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, as well as dramas like Grey's Anatomy. They are all following the Cheers formula. What about House of Cards? What about Netflix? Well, think of the strategic problem Netflix has. Your DVD business is dying it's going to streaming, you don't have any content. How are you going to create content that stands out? And so what Netflix does is basically break all the rules of television. First of all, they do have great writing. And that wasn't that path breaking, because because, uh, shows like The Sopranos and Homeland were also, they're also great writing. The Wire, edgy great writing. But they broke but they nonetheless had that kind of writing. They broke those Cheers rules about likable. I mean who likes those two? You know, nobody. I mean they're not well, they're starting to get endearing, but they're not real likable. It isn't this cast of characters that you see every week. It, they are their characters aren't explored and so forth. So first point. Netflix breaks the television rules and copies more of the Soprano type rules. But where's the real breakout? The real breakout is they, they not only do they break writing rules, they go to a new bottleneck and that's directing. In particular, David Fincher becomes on as their director. David Fincher did The Social Network, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, Benjamin Buttons, long string of hits, top-notch Hollywood director. He becomes the lead director. He then brings in other lead directors like the director of Desperate Housewives the def- and the director of um, The Sopranos, Alan Coulter. Um, And and, uh, those directors come in and each of those directors, you have to do two episodes, they have to be sequential, you have to do that, but you can hire your own daily people, for example, so you still have to use Kevin Spacey, you can't switch out Kevin Spacey. But if you have a person that's going to only be in your two episodes, you can hire that person if you want to. Uh, The other thing, you you were recommended that you should use a stationary camera because you get a more cinematic quality. In fact, one of the really striking features of House of Cards is the cinematic visual quality of the show. And that's largely because of the kind of directors who direct that and the stationary camera work. Within that, a top-notch director can do whatever he or she wants. As long as you, you do two episodes. Oh, you have to have a 20-day shoot. 20-day shoot, two episodes. Please use a cinematic camera, it's a stationary camera, but you don't have to. After that, do what you want to do. And what you get is a show. And that is actually, maybe because we're getting towards the end of time, let me just say one last thing that they did. They broke programming rules by the binge watching and they also broke hiring rules by essentially A-list director, A-list actors, and the, the creator of, of, um, of the show is not quite A-list yet, but he's been nominated for Academy Awards, so a top-notch writer. What are they doing? I may mean, say one last thing about them. Is they, they, particularly with the binge watching, and the other thing they do, which is a programming <coughs> change, the binge, allowing binge-watching and buying two years of House of Cards sight unseen. That was, there is nobody in, in television who does that. Why did Netflix, why could Netflix do that? Because they knew from their TV business, they knew you would like House of Cards because you, before you knew you'd like House of Cards. You kn- they knew Netflix subscribers watched the, the British television version and they knew that Netflix subscribers like Kevin Spacey. So they exploited their data analytics, to create a rock, rock the industry rule around programming and the purchase of programming because of their, their, their characteristics that they had. So finally, just to wrap up, so I think I got a little long, long-winded there, but let me just wrap up about what simple rules are. A handful unique to you on something specific. How do you get them? You have an objective, you find your bottleneck, you create the rules. The kinds of rules, pay attention to the stopping and timing rules. Why do they work? They make you faster, they let you scale, they let you coordinate. And then finally changing the rules by using basic learning techniques like self-reflection, experiential learning, um, and and trial and error. So let me just close with um, one of the ultimate innovators, Leonardo da Vinci, not Leonardo DiCaprio. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So thanks a lot. time for questions. Any thoughts, anybody? Yes. What were your rules in creating these slides? What are are my rules? Call Danielle. (laughs) No, Danielle, who's our expert graphics designer at STVP, created the, the slides. And what I wanted, actually, I did have. The rule was around mixing entrepreneurial companies with things you weren't expecting. That was my rule was to mix up mix up the content. Internet dating. internet dating? Oh, you gotta buy the book. <laughs> no. No, I'll give you one tip on internet dating. The most the most successful greeting on an internet email is how's it going? So try that, everybody. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Yeah, Toby? As you look at, uh Framework, and then you start to look at these uh, data set of companies that you've worked with. Is there a pattern of one or two things that uh, mistakes that you see them making consistently? Yeah, they don't take the time to crystallize what they're doing. They just keep they just keep doing, doing, doing. They never step back, self reflect, (coughs) test what's going on here. That's probably the biggest one. Anybody else? Yes. Rules for what? Being an engineer. Rules that's for being that. an engineer. Um, that's a good question. I I I am an engineer, uh, mechanical engineering, computer science, but I haven't been an engineer in a long time. Um, but I knew no rules about being a. Uh, well, first of all, one of our points is actually your rules are your rules. So, you know. Another kind of engineer might have a totally different rule, but, but one thing to watch out for I think that's a really sort of basic career advice is be sure you've got a really good first boss. Your immediate boss is good because he or she will then connect you to the rest of the company well.
1: How about you can also be a humanist? Just because you're an engineer doesn't mean you can't be a humanist as well.
0: You can't be a humanist as well. Maybe that's, maybe that's Leonardo humanist here. Well. <laughs> All right. Anything else, anybody, or we got uh, about? Yes. Um, I just had a kind of a simple question. There was a simple rule, this talking rule, where you said that if you have a business, then you have to ask yourself those four questions. Yeah. And you said um, if if you ever hit to know, then you should just stop doing it. But my question is, how do you kind of factor in like emotional kind of? Do you factor in emotional? Well that as actually taking the emotion. That's actually one of the reasons why the rules work. Because it's very hard to say goodbye to an old friend named a bad business idea. And so that's actually what a what a rule does, like or a bad stock or dare I say a a bad relationship. Um, it's when you have the rule that it actually takes the emotion out of it and you and you sort of in the abstract say, you know, I know that's not working. I know I should quit. and get over the emotion, if you will. Yes? Uh-huh.
1: We see large companies like Disney with huge handbooks of rules, literally. How do you scale backwards towards simple rules once you've accumulated a lot more regulation?
0: Um, actually, Netflix is an interesting example of that. I mean, I don't think they ever had the scale of rules that, that that Disney had. But they used to have rules around their travel policies. You know, you can expense this, you can't expense that, yada, yada, yada. They just—they basically just got rid of it around travel because it's expensive. Because they said it's taking our people a lot of time to fill all this stuff out. They don't remember the rules anyway, so they're probably not following them. So they just went to some rule. I think it was something around if you wouldn't pay for it yourself, don't make us pay for it too. Uh, so I think it's focusing on what's the problem. I mean, you can't—it's kind of like healthcare. You know, you're not going to fix healthcare in one bill. You know, you got to chip away at parts of it. So if it's what's the particular problem is it you know, expense are just driving everybody crazy. Is it PowerPoints at meetings? Is it something more substantive around product innovation? But picking, picking your spot and then stripping it away. And in and, and getting the people, what we've seen work is getting the people who actually have to use the rules, develop the rules, try the rules out, and come up with it. Yes? like the IRS to simplify the rules. Other countries have done so, like small ones, like Estonia or Russia has 10% of your income. That's it. And you don't have... How do we do that? Well, it's interesting in income taxes because the the rate of compliance in paying your taxes is inversely correlated um, with the size of your tax code. So the bigger your tax code, the less people pay um, and the more they cheat, perhaps on purpose, perhaps not. How do you get that? One of the problems with government, um, and I'm neither Republican nor Democrat here, but um, is that there are too many special interests that actually like the complexity of the tax code. Whether it's your favorite accountant, or whether it's your oil and gas lobby, or your soybean growing farmer, or whoever it is, it's the special interest, at least, am I sounding like, I don't know, do I sound like Rand Paul or something? (laughs) 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 Actually, I'm doing a radio interview tomorrow on the Rand Paul channel. speaking of but i think the problem is you have too many people for whom complexity is payday and so that's it would be a lot better if we all paid 10 percent or whatever the percent is but there are too many interests which i think is what also happened with healthcare. care not that healthcare care was ever going to be simple but um too many people are happy the way it is
1: all right kathy thank you so much thank you